are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. I will be live uh, in the chat on YouTube, and you can also tweet at uh, on CLFUU at Twitter for your questions and comments, and I'll pass them into the panelists here today as we talk about pastoral care in the age of coronavirus. Thanks so much, Lori. We're not going to be able to get to everything, but we are going to jump right in. Before we do, though, I just have to give a shout out to the folks seeing the MFC this week, the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, and also to the people serving on the MFC. I, you know, I have great compassion for both of those groups of people doing this by Zoom. It's just, it's rough. Um, we love you. Thank you, all of you, for your dedication and commitment. May it go well. <laughs> I just, especially any of you who have kids at home and are on the MFC, I just want to send, or seeing them. I mean, I, I've talked to several people who are literally sending, they're luckily not single parents, sending partners to take the kids out and drive them around for an hour. You know, it's just a hard week. So I, I just want to name that in our UU movement that is going on. So uh, yeah, that's a big deal. Anyway, we've invited three people who we thought were saying interesting things and know a lot to talk about what pastoral care looks like at this time. The Reverend Cecilia Kingman serves as the Minister for Faith and Justice at the Edmonds Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Edmonds, Washington. Um, she lives in Seattle with her partner, Alan, and their eight-year-old twins. She is the parent and step-parent of young adults as well. Welcome, Cecilia. Reverend Jordan Nelson Long is the lead minister at the Unitarian Memorial Church in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. It's one of our Unitarian cathedrals. You should look it up online sometime. It's pretty amazing. I'd never heard of it until Jordan went there and it is a horse of a different color, but it's also one of our most tech savvy congregations. They've had a Zoom hub for all members for four years, amazing. In part because Jordan used to be a learning fellow at CLF where she did pastoral care which is one reason I thought of her here today. And finally, Margaret Rogers is the Director of Lifespan Religious Education at North Lake UU Church in Kirkland, Washington, a name which many of us earlier knew from Costco and now know from you know, the horrific numbers coming out of Kirkland. She's the Vice President of the PNWD Chapter of Lareda, the Liberal Religious Educators Association. She also, and I should have said Jordan, also has kids at home right now and a spouse working from home, and so does Margaret. <laughs> and so we really uh, thank you for your time. I know it's precious for all of you. So I wanted to, and, and Asia, of course, is also in the Seattle area. I wanted to lead with some voices out of Seattle because in the US, initially that was the epicenter. Now New York City certainly has that dubious distinction. But you know, let's start with you, Cecilia. What, what, how did it, what, how's the, uh, what do they say, flatten the curve? How's the curve been there? I mean, just the curve of care and the curve of life in the congregation and, and ministry, how's that gone? Well, um, we're just 
a few miles from Margaret's congregation there in Kirkland and share an overlap area and share hospitals and all of that. So Margaret, if I say anything that is counter to your experience, I hope you'll, you'll chime in. Um, uh, for us, Edmonds is a northern suburb of Seattle, as is Kirkland. And, um, and for us, there was the initial um, shock to discover that, in fact, we were going to be this first wave here in the United States. And um, I have to, it's hard to even count how many weeks it's been since we've been in this sanctuary, but it's actually, it's only, it's been, we did two weeks of, um, of worship from the sanctuary where we were empty. That was after the first week where we told everybody they couldn't hold their ha hold hands and you know all of that, and we were trying to figure out what to do with the offering. Um, so then we did two weeks in the sanctuary with a skeleton crew, trying to be CL well, not really trying to be CLF, but you know thinking like we had to ramp up all this um, tech, and um, and then uh, very quickly we went to broadcasting from our home. So I preached last week from from my daughter's bedroom, actually, because it had the nicest backdrop. And um, and Eric will be preaching, Eric Kamenetsky, uh, who is our senior minister, will be preaching from his home. Um, and um, and so there's this like this arc of intensity and prep, and I've spoken about this publicly before, um, that I don't think actually served us particularly well because then we were exhausted. And then there was this lull um, once you've got everything, you know, everybody's in a Zoom group and you've checked on all your folks. Then there's this lull, um, which I describe as the lull of dread, where we are kind of waiting now um, to see how it's going to begin to affect our congregation. And just um, in just in the last few days, the circle has drawn closer and people, um, to the best of my knowledge this morning, we don't yet have any confirmed cases in our congregation, but we do have congregants who are losing people. Um, and we've arrived at that stage. And so that's, you know, that's where we are right now. That's what it looks like from here. Thanks. Margaret, how about you? Same question. And Jordan, I'll ask you too. So we, um, we have had three services since, um, since going with nobody in our sanctuary. We actually moved to our conference room and other satellite rooms to do our check. Um, but yeah, so we, we had, we'd made that decision, I guess, um, between March 1st and March 5th or so. So pretty early on, we were like, oh, this isn't this isn't what we're gonna be doing um, and shifted fairly quickly. Um, I work with Reverend Nancy Reed McKee. Uh, she was a public health nurse <laughs> and she just joined us in August um, and she's fabulous. So she was thinking about the similar kinds of things. What do we need uh, rather than what can we reproduce? And uh, we do have a fairly technically um, savvy group working with us. So we, we shifted over. Um, as far as the what's going on for us, we had probably about two weeks of kind of white knuckling whether or not children were in school and trying to figure out how long do you stay versus um, at what point do you keep your kids home? What does it mean to be pressuring the schools to shut down when you have people who are in the healthcare um, you know, our doctors and our nurses and our home health aides, all of those people needed to be at work, as well as our grocery store workers and everyone who's keeping us alive. So we were looking and noticing that at the beginning. Um, and then um, 
at that first week was when I said, oh, so we're going to need to shift on what we're doing for religious education as well. Um, I, I almost put into my bio, I'm the director of Lifespan Religious and Technology Education, because that first week we also did in-person meetings about how do, you, how do you do Zoom. And so some of our folks who've pulled together to do pastoral care, we have a response team, we have um, specific to this moment care teams that are reaching out. Um, our minister and our former interim minister called folks um, over that first week. And um, the people who lead our small groups and who lead our affinity groups stepped up, learned how to do the Zoom piece and started gathering their people and said, we can do this. And so um, that was kind of where we were in the first few weeks. Uh, I intentionally waited on a few of our programs, not starting everything at once, just to see what does it look like to have our children at home? Um, what does that mean to me? What do I need to be doing now? And how do I need support? So we've just this week started looking at beyond a single check-in with our children in, in midweek um, to add, what do parents need for themselves? I've sent out the survey asking that. So we're kind of looking at it in that long-term view already to say, how can we continue what we need to do, support where we need to support and not overwhelm either ourselves or our folks. So that's kind of where we are. Can I just say real quick before you go, Jordan, um, Kirkland is the city where Life Care Center is, where the epicenter of the breakout. And Margaret, do you have any connections to any of your congregants to Life Care? Um, so yes, we had a couple of connections. Um, some folks work there uh, occasionally, and um, it's not just life care that has uh, has folks now. And so we have connections to people whose um, family members are in uh, a nursing type care sy system and situation who who are experiencing um, illness at this point. So yeah. So before we move to Jordan, I'll just flag for people listening later that apparently YouTube's having some buffering issues. If you're getting any bumps, that's just because everyone's on YouTube now. But uh, we'll we'll keep going and hope and trust that it, it evens out. So Jordan Nelson Long. So I would say that's a pretty uh, concise uh, segue and answer to to the question that you're asking, you know, we're keeping going and hoping and trusting that it works out. And, um, you know, the unofficial motto of CLF as an organization and as a ministry is always in beta. Um, you know, we said that to each other a lot during my time on staff, and I definitely brought that approach into my ministry, um, which has been good. I mean, as my congregants have pointed out, this is our fourth year together and things have been pretty off the wall nationally for, for every single one of those years. I mean, there hasn't been a, a normal, the once in a lifetime kinds of disruption events that you are seeing are, are not once in a lifetime anymore. And so there is that in the background combined with uh, churches institutionally trying to make the leap um, into the technology era, combined with me being a generation younger than any minister they've ever had. Um, we've been always in beta this whole time. And I think that is serving us in this moment in that it is such an evolving, changing situation that I didn't come in um, you know, four weeks ago with the assumption that anything that we tried was going to be the thing that we would be sticking with um, 
for any with any definiteness or or for any length of time necessarily. Um, and as I shared with you, Meg, um, at some point in the last couple of weeks, uh, I'm really grateful to have had the training in online worship. Um, partly so that it doesn't intimidate me and so I know what the tools are, but even more so, I think the greatest gift has been um, that I have lower expectations of, of the magic that it perhaps uh, might be expected to, uh, to have for our congregations. I know what it is and I also know what it isn't. And so I don't feel like we have to knock ourselves out to try to overcome what almost inherently is going to be an experience of tech glitch and missed connections, um, assuming that we're basically trying to 3D print a physical ministry in virtual space. So last week, we partnered with Cedar Lane, um, which itself was partnering with Silver Spring, you know, both out in the DC area. Uh, they were very kind and gave us a shout out from their literal pulpit where uh, they are still uh, preaching, uh, Reverend Abby Giannamanchi and Reverend Katie Romano Griffin. Uh, we were also welcomed by Tim Atkins, their DRE and their tech team. Um, my people loved it. They really enjoyed the, the music that was available and the more full-scale worship experience that our larger congregations are in a position to provide. Um, that church is providing options for uh, virtual giving on a slide for other congregations that are participating, which is one of the most generous uh, and collaborative things I've ever seen happen. Um, so we're trying to allocate part of our giving towards Cedar Lane to support them too. So it's just kind of a new uh, model and we're gonna continue that through this week. And you know, then we'll kind of see what, what the world looks like. So Jordan, we're talking about pastoral care and you just talked about partnering with two other churches. <laughs> and I think those things are related, profoundly related right now. So I'm wondering from all of you, uh, because I see so many people working so hard right now and I know it's gonna get harder. Uh, what, so what have you found to be essential to do at this time, you all mentioned reaching out to everybody in the congregation, getting people into small groups. What's essential and what's optional in, in church life? And any of you could start with that. But Jordan, I tagged you because you picked a model to lower your need to produce worship, allegedly giving you more capacity to do something different, right? Yes. Uh, and actually, I want to freeze right here and just say that Part of what I have needed more capacity for, and I'm going to just claim this space for all of us in this movement and probably for all of us in this country, I've needed more capacity just to stare at the wall. Uh, this situation is so unprecedented. It is so traumatic. It is so changing. Um, it's We're not even at the peak. Not even New York City is at the peak. And so there's a lot of unknown going on. Um, I've been preserving capacity to do some different things and work some initiatives in my congregation, but even more than that, I'm preserving capacity just to continue functioning. And that's to say nothing of the, the massive life shift that happens when you have, as, as we have in my house, um, a two-parent working family that suddenly are both working from home when normally neither of us were, um, with kids underfoot. I, so, you know, you're doing a shift that is making it so that you have to put the life pieces in first, right? And I think that's what we're finally starting to figure out is you can't put your nine to five 
and then kind of like squish your life into the edges when you're all living in your house. You have to start with the life pieces and then add the other work pieces on top of it. So I, I would say all of that is a pastoral care gesture in honesty that I'm making to our movement, to our religious professionals, to other parents. I, I have an employment lawyer who is working from home right now, single parent. I'm, it's really really quite difficult. Um, so maybe that's enough for right now, but that's the initial framing that I would give. There is actually one more thing, which is that we use Slack as a digital hub. And I'm not telling you to start Slack if you don't have it, although I am running a series of Friday free hour-long classes for religious professionals if you want to jump on with me and kind of learn about Slack. Um, but I bring that up because I do think the one thing my congregation absolutely needs through this, no matter what the changes are, is a sense of connection, both with each other and also with our purpose, with the like, what are we here to do? And the more I've been able to remind myself of that, the more clear I am what my job is in this weird moment. Thanks. Cecilia, I saw a lot of nodding, which the podcasters won't be able to see, but you want to say something there? Um, well, I just really appreciate Jordan laying that out because I would say exactly the same thing. Uh, and we we have young children underfoot um, and we, um, my spouse is actually on, uh, on, is supporting the front lines of the homelessness response here in Seattle. So we are both working a lot. Um, we're fortunate to have one of our young adult children at home to help, but that doesn't, that, you know, the reality is that we are enduring a very, a slow moving trauma in this country. And, um, and as are our children, even if they are not, most of them are obviously aware, especially if they're routines have been disrupted, but they're also experiencing the emotional field that um, parents and caregivers are giving off. And so I, like Jordan, am working less um, in order to work more as, as we see these the deaths roll in. I mean, that's the reality of it. Eric Kamenetsky and I are deliberately cautioning our lay leadership and our staff to maintain their reserves, their emotional and um, physical reserves as best we can um, because we know what's coming. Um, and I'm telling all the parents, so I was a homeschool, I have homeschooled children throughout my extended, those of you who know me know how long I've been parenting. It's been almost 30 years. And um, and I, I, I just wanna absolve everyone of trying to homeschool in these days in, in part because it's not homeschooling. It's it, the most important thing right now is to is is feelings. That's what we say at our house. Like the most important thing is feelings. And I can probably guarantee you that during this broadcast, one of my twins is going to come and crawl in my lap, and I'm going to allow that. When ordinarily I would be like, no, 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 no. I'm on this. I'm on the view. Like because the most because emotions are because feelings are first right now. And um, and that that i just keep telling our people that that um you don't have to do anything sitting and staring is good i can't even concentrate on netflix and i confess that i sometimes resent the people who are having baking because they can't even concentrate i'm like how can you bake right now you know i'm not <laughs> just in full pastoral confession if baking is helping you that's awesome but i am spending a lot of time um just snuggling my children right now. And that is actually the most important work, even as a religious professional that I think I can do. I'm trying to support my spouse who is hearing some pretty intense stories. So that's that secondary trauma. And, um, 
And as I said earlier, we're beginning to have congregants lose people. And so that's the, that is the work. The work is, is it's all pastoral care. That's what we say in our congregation. It's all pastoral care right now. That's all it is. So I'm so glad this was the first of your, of your things. And I'm aware like Jordan, that people need things to do that, um, Unitarian Universalists, like so many good church people, uh, need need to feel useful and we've we've lost some of the most important ways that our folks do that right now um our folks can no longer feed, do that, participate in the homeless feeding program that they participate in and we run a car camp uh in our in our um congregation, we, we use our parking lot and not, they can no longer be personally supporting those folks who are, um, who are living in their cars, who are now on our, in our parking lot, you know, round the clock. And so I've been trying to think of what are the ways, um, that's is a pastoral question. And I'm glad that next week is going to be on justice. What are the ways that our people can be useful because that's a powerful antidote to despair. So Thank you. Margaret, I'm, you know, you're here as a family minister and, and both Jordan and Cecilia have talked about their own families and families, but I'm curious, both for parents and also for religious professionals who do family ministry, um, what do you think is the key to feelings, connections, the, the things that have been mentioned? Um, yeah, so what um, what came up for me as I was listening to Jordan and Cecilia is that that decision-making process in times of uncertainty is exhausting. And recognizing that and saying that is real, that's something um, that we have to leave space for, that that's okay. And to take some of those, I was thrilled to hear that the school district had made the decision because then I didn't have to make the decision every day about whether to go to school. Um, I felt like it was pastoral care for us to make the decision that we were closing our doors that second week of March because the, virt the virtual doors opened and the, the sanctuary doors closed because that was another spot decision-making. Should I be going? Should I not? What does that mean? So um, I'm, I'm looking at it in, in those kinds of ways and for families to, to be able to say both, sometimes you do need the structure. It depends on who your people are, right? So if engaging in the schoolwork that is being sent home is working for you, um, if you need that space for your kids to feel like there's some sense of normalcy, let's do that. And for, for I was a, um, a mathematics educator for middle schoolers before I did this job. And so I still tutor sometimes. And my children are doing some work and not all the work. Um, and I think saying all of those ways of doing things are good. You know, find what is responsive to the to the family that you have, not the family of your imagining. Um, so those are kinds of the pieces that we're bringing forth here at this point. Um, and frankly, I told my own children, do not do any of the work that is boring. One of them started crying when they read the thing and I was like, mm -mm, we are not doing that. And I'm gonna say that to all of my families, do not do the work that is boring. Do the work that is that you have a passion for as an educator. I'm like, that is what we need to do. Yes, you also do need to learn math. I do think it's important, but we don't have to do, you know, the times tables. We don't have to write the, um, the morning starting work that is not relevant to your experience. So let's set those things aside and, you know, let our families know, let's set that stuff aside. We do not need to be engaging in stuff that is not helpful. And then let's see, 
what can we discern is helpful for ourselves. Um, and as I said, you know, we didn't start everything all at once. Um, we have, we are great, I'm so grateful we have a couple of staff teachers at North Lake. And so one of them is doing story time on Wednesdays with me. She is the face of the joy <laughs> um, for, for our kids in our congregation. And so doing things where they can see one another, where they can show their little stuffed animals and, you know, all of that stuff, play with the backgrounds. Um, that's kind of where we are right now and gives giving that sense of connection. So um, I think that's all. I think so much of this is a great bridge to between this show, which is focused on pastoral care and next week's show, which is focused on social justice, because I think there's so much overlap in that. And, and I think the next part of, of the challenge for our congregations is how to take what we're doing for our congregations out into the community, um, because there are so many people who are doing um, life-saving work in our communities that are unchurched, um, that need what we have. And they, they needed it before, right? <laughs> we knew that, we knew that they needed it before, but they really need it now. Um, and so trying to figure out the ways in which um, we don't become even more um, navel-gazing, for lack of a, bit, a better phrase, um, then we then our, our tendency already kind of led us as you use, um, but really um, trying to see, you know, how do we broaden those experiences of, you know, a story time for community. Um, you know, I'm thinking in particular, so I, I'm not serving in a congregational setting right now, um, but I'm serving in community ministry and um, the mutual aid workers in all of our major cities are doing just amazing, phenomenal work. Um, and they need sustenance. They need spiritual sustenance. Um, and we are uniquely um, positioned to give them the spiritual sustenance that they need because of our beliefs and values. And so that pastoral care of um, how it intersects, I see that intersection with the social justice is how do we provide that pastoral care beyond our now virtual walls? Um, because there are folks out there who are, you know, they're working 18 hour days to do grocery deliveries, taking care of elders. Um, you know, we're, we're handing out, you know, trying to hand out money um, and, the infrastructure for that is not there. So we're creating it as we're doing it. And I don't want to see these folks burn out um, because the work that they're doing is, is in as life-saving as the work that, that, you know, our frontline medical and first responders are doing. Um, so yeah, please. Um, and, you know, I think that's a challenge. I, I know everybody's really just like trying to get it together for our congregation right now. But if they can have in their mind, okay, we're trying to get it together for our congregation. And how can we take this outside of our virtual walls? Um, that I think is really our calling as you use. You know, I, I, some of you may have read this article on grief from the Harvard Business Review, which I found really helpful. It's the guy who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and he's added a sixth stage of grieving, which he said they talked a lot about 
but never formalized before she died. And that is meaning and purpose. After you come to acceptance, then you come to, okay, who am I called to be now? And I think the reason that, Christina, what you say is so important is that finding our own meaning and purpose, I believe is often in serving, is often in serving the bigger world. You know, it's taking care of ourselves goes so far for really feeling like, you know, here, here I am and, and life is meaningful. And so, you know, I think people hearing that could hear, oh my God, I'm overwhelmed already. And now you're telling me something else to do. So I just want to frame that as that is part of pastoral care. And we will be connecting to that next week. So it, there aren't, the boundaries are broken. <laughs> and, and I would hate to see churches replicate unnecessary boundaries that we've been wanting to break for a while. Cecilia, yeah, and, and the reality that? is, and the reality is, is that, you know, many, many of our congregants are some of the most resourced people in our communities. Let's just call it, right? I'm not saying they're all, absolutely not saying that at all, but many of our congregants are the most resourced people in the community. They, they we want to care for them pastorally, but we also need to challenge them to see how they can use those resources um, outside of our congregations. Yeah, Cecilia. Yeah, Meg knows I have some strong feelings about this. <laughs> I, um, Christina, thank you. I am, I am deeply concerned about the massive uh, movement of resources within our denomination to, um, which is just beginning to continue to um, to uh, continue normalcy as best we can uh, for people who are by and large privileged and um, and I'm I, I'm not going to name any names or call out any specific organizations, but to say you know we we are. Um, we are de devoting an enormous amount of, uh, of energy, staff timing, and money, big chunks of money to figure out how to do Zoom better for people who are already pretty connected and, you know, by and large have um, support structures and all of this. And, and I, I actually, I think it's an ethical, um, I think we're verging on an ethical failure. On our part, and uh, and so thinking about you know what it what are who are we called as Unitarian Universalists to be right now? Who is going to be most impacted by the um, by this broken healthcare system? The homeless, people who are disabled, uh, people of color who historically have been underserved or badly misused by medical um, by medical systems. So you know the just watching the ethical conversations unfold about choosing who is going to get a ventilator. Um, you know, we, we have a moral obligation, I think, to be engaged in these conversations um, as, as an ethical religion uh, and providing support to frontline caregivers who are having to think through these things. We need to be engaging our best theological minds on this, not, I mean, I'd like to see Jordan, who I think has one of the finest theological minds in our movement. I'd like to see Jordan have more space not just to stare at walls, but also to be reflecting theologically and in conversation and even helping our, our colleagues. Um, what, are our, what are we standing on theologically? What are we 
I just used an ableist metaphor and I'm sorry, but you know, what is under, what, what is underneath us? Cause I feel like the only thing underneath me right now are the Psalms as a Christian Unitarian Universalist, like the Psalms and that's it. So what are our theological frameworks for the suffering that is coming and who are we directing those resources to support? And, and I feel fortunate to serve a congregation that is, is, outward, is already outward focused and is asking those questions and is asking me, can we please go hand out food? But there's a much larger um, theological and ethical and moral um, framework that we're, not, that we're not digging into and we're gonna need. Can we now have the conversation about endowments and, and what bullshit they are? I mean, maybe now when we can talk about well-resourced and how many like congregations in New England that are sitting on piles of money and have maybe less than a hundred members. I, I wanna lift up all of the colleagues that I hear being picked on by congregants for not doing it well enough online. And I think trying to please them is just the absolute wrong thing to do right now. I, I think, and I understand we're all worried economically. Everybody's worried about, oh, if I don't try to please this person, maybe I'll lose my job. It's real. The economics of our congregations are really struggling right now. Some of them with endowments, some of them without. But I just wanna say um, pastorally to colleagues, don't, don't try to get perfect at it. I just did last week an absolutely horrible teaching on how to use cameras. I mean, it was awful. And I thought I was embarrassed later. I thought, oh my God, take that down. And I thought, you know what? It's what Jordan said. It's actually great to model failure right now. And then just say, yeah, that's, you know, I handheld the camera. It was shaky. It was just my tripod broke. Anyway, and here I am trying to teach people how to use cameras. Well. And what I think right now and, and I asked Victoria Weinstein to talk about what to wear and she wore a pattern, which would be what I would say never to wear, you know, like, and she did it on the fly. And I feel like um, right now it's really important to see what Jordan learned in a two-year internship. There is no perfect tech worship. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. And so, you know, we've been trying platform after platform at CLF. Oh, if we just do this, we do that. It doesn't exist just the way, you know, it's life. And I think excellence to try to get excellence is wrong ethically it's wrong it's just and so this is permission for fail it's permission for fail it's permission to say that's white supremacy culture that values perfection we're not doing that anymore we can't we have important things to do Aisha you're going to say something well, well, first I want to make the point that I think at least in our congregation, we became friendlier as soon as we stopped coffee hour um, and we've had different engagements on Zoom. <laughs> so I don't mean that to even be snarky. It's just people are paying attention to each other in a different way. So I think we've become already 20% friendlier as a congregation. Um, I have a question for you all because I, I do report to the board. I'm a religious educator and I'm finding that um, maybe it's part of a trauma response of the board just wanting to meet as if we are not in a global pandemic and we're not, you know, our state now, everyone has to stay home unless you're essential. So what is it that the three of you are telling your boards to, it's a, it's a, it's a dance, right? Because yes, they, there is a, they have the fiduciary responsibility to run the church and they're going through their own trauma. I mean, our board president can't see his grandchildren because they're carriers or it could be right. So that's what I want to speak to is the pastoral care to the, boards of your congregations and to, to leaders. I'm curious about what you're telling them. Jordan, you want to go first? 
Yeah, uh, I think that's a great question and definitely a thing that I've been wrestling with. Um, and what I want to say before that, I think, um, and I definitely anticipate that y'all will be continuing this really important conversation and the threads of it next week as you explore justice even more explicitly um, in this moment. I wanna lift up that I am called and I chose to accept the call to serve a brick and mortar parish in a particular place. It is a very place-rooted ministry, more than some actually. Um, and I am a place-rooted minister. And knowing that I serve a congregation that um, has been about to embark on its first capital campaign in its history, in its 200 year history, that has a cathedral, occupies a city block, does have an endowment that is large and nothing compared to what is needed for this, you know, uh, unbelievable, um, literally priceless building. Um, when I was thinking, you know, this is the four year mark, it's been a very developmental ministry. How is the match going? Am I going to stay? One of the things that I have had to deal with with myself and then talk about with my people, um, and before anyone has a heart attack, uh, I think my congregation is clear on this. We bought a house, we're staying, we did this decision making. But the process that we had to, to go through and me in particular around call was, what does it mean for me to agree to be beholden, to journey with these people through their concerns for this structure in this community? And my call doesn't begin there and it doesn't end there. I have a very uh, justice-rooted community building. We're doing this like Treat New Bedford, which is historically a very marginalized community in Massachusetts as the hub because it is. And so we're building relationships and really pushing that, that message as hard as we can. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it with any ethic. I couldn't do it with any authenticity. And I couldn't do it with any love if I were not willing to be with them with what they care about. And more to the point, in a, a grassroots funded movement that relies upon individual units of institutionality, I would not have a job if I were not able to love these people and journey with them. I think we're constantly called to hold the tension and the reality of all of this. And I hope that we can continue to see false choice for what it is and to understand that caring for our institutions allows us to care for our communities. It's when we pull too hard on the side of the institution only that we really lose sight of that. Like, what are we here for? We, we got to do both. But it is having a job that pays me to care about community that allows me to actually do it rather than just a pigeonhole it on the side. So with all of that, uh, as prelude, I will say that it's been a, an exercise in cognitive dissonance, quite honestly, uh, to work with leaders and board in a state where um, the public health response has been a little slower than I think a lot of us expected that it would be, um, has pulled a little more hard toward moderatism in the not positive uh, connotation of that has been very wait and see rather than, you know, we know that community spread is happening. And th that messaging and the lack thereof has really affected people's sense of risk, um, people's uh, sense of what's important in conversation, people's dealing with congregational business. Um, and it has really allowed people to hew toward a business as usual when an emergency message might have been uh, more appropriate. And so we've been having conversations that simultaneously are like, 
this is an emergency. We have a lot of elderly members. I don't want to have to bury you. I finally just came out and said that literally out loud and on Facebook. I don't want to bury you. Please pay attention. Well, at the same time, we're like, well, we don't know if we have to cancel our 200th birthday celebration in May. Um, uh, so I, I think it's holding the tension even in the work with boards, you know, and, and recognizing that the doing the work, it's like that Marge Piercy poem to be of use, doing the work feeds people, it calms people, it's pastoral care for a lot of our cerebral and hands-on people, and uh, attending to the reality that business as usual doesn't exist right now is part of a, a, a pastoral and prophetic message. Margaret? So I'm, oh, thank you, Jordan. Um, this pulls up for me, I am a very risk averse person in general. I actually had to think about coming on here because I'm like, oh, that's, you know, and this moment calls us to say what, yes, layoffs are happening. We are all in the room. And I'm going to say this for my congregation. We are all in the room, those who have resources and those who don't. And it's sh the shift is real for all of us. And the risk that you may be laid off or that you may have to furlough or lay off the people that are working for you. Both of these things I think need to be holding that pastoral care. And in this moment is not the time to fall back into our risk averseness and say, right now I'm okay, but I might not be later. Now is the time for us to say, right now I'm okay and there are others who are currently not. And so that piece of the tension and bringing that up for our leadership writ large, not necessarily just our board, um, is really important. The first, one of the first conversations we had about worship was um, we, we share the plate and it's for Black Mama's bailout right now for March. And we had one Sunday in March in our pews. And they said, what are we gonna do? And so that commitment that we had, you know, we have to think, okay, how does that work? And, and indeed, it's fine. It's coming through. Um, our meditation group, we partner with um, Seattle Insight Meditation. I'm going to give a shout out to Steve Wilhelm. He does Eastside Insight with us. And they were doing their um, every other week sit it at Northlake. And now they're doing it weekly on Zoom with us. Um, so using our Zoom, do, doing a little bit of tech support for them. And they're looking at where can we put the Donna, the donation that comes in? Where can we put it to best use? So I think our people are really thinking about how do we take what we have and make sure it's getting to where it needs to go? Um, and those are always gonna be important conversations. And knowing that right now is right now. We just have to work with what we've got going on for today. Um, the other piece, um, in that context of what does it look like for each individual, one of us and for each individual congregation. Um, I think that the board, the board conversation really stems directly from that. You know, what is it that our aspirations are? What is it that will get us through this week, this month, and then next year? Um, yeah. That's really beautiful, Margaret. I, I wonder if that's developmental in terms of, um, like I woke up this morning and I thought for, I've been in kind of survival. Do I have, does my kid have, do the people close to me? How's my niece? Today I woke up and I thought I can't stand another day where I'm thinking about myself. I need, there are all these people in trouble, but I wonder if it's a developmental thing, you know, that, that Maslow pyramid that we do have to know we're okay. And so what does it mean to know you're okay? And for really privileged congregations, that means 
you know, an endowment that everything will be fine. And, you know, I think um, for all of us, Jordan said it really clearly, it does mean enough money to, to live. And I don't know about you all, but at CLF, a lot of the pastoral care I'm doing is with people who have lost their jobs, who have no savings, who are gonna get evicted. I mean, cause we get a lot of financially um, marginal people who come to us and, and it's hard to just keep saying, I'm, I'm praying for you, <laughs> you know, but that's kind of what I can say. And then that's not even to touch our incarcerated members who, you know, so yeah, it's, um, I think doing the pastoral care, at least in my context, is heartbreaking for me. So I, I have to care for myself, but that kind of, do I have enough is not caring for me anymore. That's like the opposite of caring for myself as I care for others. Cecilia, you look like you were leaning in to say something. Um, well, I just wanna go back to your initial question about what is it like to be with boards, Asia? Um, and I, I wanna say a particular thing too. I know that some of our religious professionals are under um, some pretty heavy duress from congregations to continue to do business as usual. And um, and I, I, I just want to say um, that my heart really hurts for those colleagues who um, who are struggling to to um, help people realize we are we are in a slow moving disaster and business as usual is is suspended um, for quite a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, our our. Um, we had an emergency board meeting as soon as we realized uh, how quickly this was going to unfold. Um, and then our regularly scheduled board meeting, it was only a pastoral care check-in. That's all we did. And our people needed that. And then we said, okay, is there anything pressing like that we're going to have a legal issue if we don't deal with it on our regular agenda? There was one tiny thing that we addressed and then we, and then we just moved on. We formed a, a pastoral care, I mean, a, um, a disaster response team made up a part of our executive team and, um, and gave all power pretty much to those folks to make quick decisions. And I, I just, if there are any board people watching right now, I just want to urge you to, to trust your ministers and to shift to, um, to, disaster response. That's where we are. And continuing to have conversations about um, how you, we're, we've already suspended our annual meeting. We, we, we're not planning to have our regular and we're not planning to do it. We're not planning to, um, to, we had some good advice about just waiting to create our budget, you know, and, and we have folks who are already losing their jobs and, and, um, and God, I didn't even think about the folks who are having to decide to lay off like the pastoral implications for folks who have to decide who to lay off or whether to shut down. Um, you know, those are, those are immensely large, painful pastoral questions. And, um, and so I just, I just want to, I just want to lift up that colleagues are hurting in knowing that they are caring for staff teams. And if you're disconnect with your board, um, I just, I, I feel incredibly fortunate that our, our board got it, but that's the value. I mean, that's the terrible value of being in the quote epicenter as it begins is like, you don't get to not get it, you know, just down the road in Kirkland where, Mar where Margaret is like, this was, so, um, and it'll come. The other thing I've realized too, and I would say this to, um, to, to everyone is like, people don't get it until they get it. And that may be a normal um, denial mechanism. People don't get it until they get it. And I quickly stopped trying to waste time 
um, I was, I was like yelling at colleagues, like, you don't get it. It's coming for you. Um, and it's, I'm just like, people are ready when they're ready. But if, if boards could um, make that shift, it would be huge, huge in being on top of the needs of the congregation and your community rather than behind and scrambling. Yeah, as an early adopter on the, this is not okay uh, sort of messaging, um, I will say that it has been definitely part of my pastoral journey and continues to be of recognizing that um, when you feel like Cassandra of Greek myth, like you foresee a calamity and you're powerless to prevent it and people are not ready to hear about it. And you're in a really unique spot and it requires pastoral care to yourself and to those in your intimate circles. And then you also have to continually get yourself ready to care for people who are where you were two weeks ago, which is simultaneously a relief and incredibly frustrating. And what I think I'm discovering is that that just continues. Like at this point, we all seem to agree, at least in my circles, this is now a problem. Like that first level denial is gone. Um, I'm pastoring to and with people. And I do understand this is so real. I'm not minimizing any of this. The level of disruption alone would be worth mourning. It's just not all of it. You know, I have people who now are channeling deep frustration and real anger at places like the school district. And Again, it's not that I don't get it, but I'm watching people in my wider circles literally die. And so I'm sitting then with this level of grief and then trying to remember that two weeks from now, I'm going to be pastoring there uh, to people who, who know that. And, and God only knows what my family and I are going to be dealing with, like looking at this trajectory. So I think there's a real need to recognize the trauma, the ripples of trauma and that the ways that it it starts with and, and lives in us also. I am having to do embodied trauma care on and for myself literally daily. I'm so glad you brought up trauma. And, and I wanna talk about PTSD because one of the things so present for me is that I became a minister when the AIDS epidemic was raging and I was burying people all the time. And the government was similarly, we don't care, die as they are at some levels now. And um, so I have trauma both about the lack of care coming from the government. So I don't watch any news. Uh, I have great state leadership and I'm lucky, but I know some people are in states where the states are saying the same things that are coming out of um, the mouth of the person in the White House. Um, so there's that. And then I, some of my older folks have post polio and they were maybe put into an iron lung at age four and locked into a hospital away. From their family. So I feel like there are these layers of past trauma also that come up. Um, Cecilia, you got something for that? Yeah, I do. I am really glad that you raised that, that piece about the AIDS and polio. My father um, was a polio survivor. He had post-polio syndrome and he died in October. And I'm realizing that generationally, the impact of, of polio um, and its fears, you know, uh, what that what's happening for our older people who lived through that epidemic um, is is profound. And I'm also aware that for our colleagues in New York, in New York City, um, you know, New York City is now the the disaster, the hot zone, the disaster zone. And the this is a, a city that lived through 9-11. And I, I my my heart is just 
full for our colleagues who are there on the front line. And, and the AIDS epidemic was pronounced there as well. And just, you know, the level of re-traumatization and trauma, and of course, anyone who's anyone who's experienced trauma is now being re-traumatized, right? It's just, we all, that, that would be time well spent rather than learning how to use Zoom, getting our footing on um, trauma would be t- as if we had time to read, but yes, that's it. Margaret, I'm wondering if you see, you know, generational and I mean, we, we all work with families. It's not like you're the family person, the rest of us just, but, you know, I'm curious about uh, family trauma and multi-generational. And of course, there are whole communities that are just in trauma all the time because of the government not caring about them, black and brown people, disabled people. So, you know, this, this rings of trauma just, you know, um, but I, I do wonder about, um, you know, because we know that trauma goes is passed through generations, and um, so yeah, I'm just curious if if that brings up anything for you. Um, it's it's interesting. I'm seeing I'm seeing different responses, as I think we all are. Um, some of them are generational. Some of them are circumstantial. Um, living through war, having bombs, you know, dropped in London. Um, we are hearing from our folks in a number of different ways around that. And then um, the differentiation, I think maybe more for me, what I'm seeing is what it means for parents to try to hold some level of comfort so that their children are not yet traumatized. Um, that yes, we're all hearing this. And there, then there's the, you mentioned, someone mentioned turning off the radio, not necessarily listening to all of the news. Um, I'm seeing that kind of protective factors coming in. Um, but yeah, the individual experience of what it means to not have the ability to go where you want to go or the um, all of a sudden loss of the friends, the experiences that you were expecting for those teenagers in particular, the that time, it's not replicable on Zoom. You know, it just isn't. And, um, you know, we've had that conversation in my house as well. Yes, you can see your friends outside as long as you stay a full six feet away. And yet, you know, it's just not enough. So the I'm not sure I'm speaking to trauma necessarily, but the difference in experience for each of us and how we hold a little bit of um, protective barrier, both literal here, but also for our emotional life is ranging for all ages and for all, um, all experiences that we're bringing to it. I think we need to do a whole show on youth and young adults because I think there are really particular needs and concerns. And so thank you for raising that. And I, I think that'll be a future show. Um, and hey, now there are youth and young adults who can come because they're not in school. So we'll be able to do that. Uh, we are coming to the top of the hour. As I said at the beginning, we barely scratched the surface of this. But um, I want to give each of our guests a moment to just say anything you didn't say. There's anything you planned to say and didn't get to. Uh, anybody ready to start with that? I would just say, um, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself so that uh, you are able to do the caretaking that is yours to do in in ever widening circles. And then the other reminder is our job always, at least as I understand it, is to continually broaden that circle of care and to do it meaningfully and accountably. So again, 
that that take care of what you need to put on your oxygen mask so that we can do this other piece. Go ahead, Margaret. So um, for me, I'm putting on my uh, vice president of uh, the chapter of Lareda here, um, reaching out to our colleagues. Literally the first thing I did when I heard we were switching over was say, okay, I'm gonna get through this Sunday and then who can help me? <laughs> and so um, I, I just put out a note and I said, who, who wants to join a Zoom call on this? So that reaching out, maybe to share information, but more importantly, to share experience and to share a moment to hear one another. Um, those are the things that uh, so important for me in the first, you know, literally the first week as I went, oh, this is new and different. Um, so reaching, reaching out to folks who have a similar experience and just listening to one another. I would say um, get, get into your prayer closet. That's what I would say. Um, and for those who don't understand that reference, just that the most critical thing that leaders can be doing right now is, um, is actually spiritual care for oneself. And the, um, the more you feel like you don't have time to pray or meditate or, um, or do whatever is your spiritual practice, the more you need to do it. As hard as that is, I am, I'm now praying with a child in my lap, you know, every morning. So Aisha or Christina, anything you want to say? Yeah, I, thank you. This is another amazing show. I, I agree with Margaret. Um, checking in with people. Uh, there are folks from all over um, the world who've reached out because I live in Seattle now. I've lived in several places. Uh, and it's just been so touching. And even just to say, how are you? And, um, you know, even in the text, it's been just uh, life-giving. So I've been returning that and checking in with people I haven't heard from. So that's huge. And Lareda, I don't know if the UUMA is, but a shout out to Lareda Continental. There's a twice a week check-in that people just on Zoom, you come in and say, here's how I am. And about 15 people on average have been attending twice a week. So, or not, you know, some same, some not, but that's huge. So thank you for that. Thank you all. Christina? Um, I'm just super grateful for, you know, our congregations, but are particularly our religious professionals. And um, just reiterate, you know, one more time, please, please, please don't try and recreate Sunday morning all over again um, on your new Zoom. Um, take it down a notch and, you know, just get out there, you know, on Zoom and be with people. It doesn't have to be the greatest sermon ever. And if it is, it should be 10 minutes and no longer. And <laughs> that too is pastoral care. Um, and, you know, just just try and remember that, that we're just trying to be here with each other. And it's not a performance. It's not a production. Don't compare yourself to the congregation down the street. Um, and, you know, take care of each other. Thanks everyone. The one thing I'd add that nobody has said, but I'm doing a social media Sabbath every week. I'm getting off Friday at sunset. I'm getting back on Saturday night. And it was hard last week, y'all. I kept going, wait, I'm in Facebook. How did I get here? Just like listening to the news obsessively is overwhelming and not helpful. As wonderful as the collaboration is, my God, take a break from it. You know, just talk to the people you love, like not a thousand Facebook friends, like really, really take a break. Just give yourself a break. Lori, did you want to say something? 
Yeah, as someone who has been working from home in this virtual world for the last five years on Zoom as our primary way of doing church, um, remember that you have a body and remember that your body needs to be stretched and cared for and that if you're there's a lot of people who feel like they need permission to kind of step away from the camera for a few seconds or turn it off and, and move. Um, I give you permission. <laughs> there's just, we have to remember our bodies um, because this is where we live. And so be, be good with your bodies too, for those of us uh, in the religion professional world who are maybe just starting this zoom journey and you know, an hour of Zoom is a lot. Uh, four hours of Zoom is unbearable. 10, 12, 14 hours of Zoom, which you may be on in a day yeah, or two. No, you just it's can't. Just, it's, you have to move. Yeah, Every and, hour you have to And move. don't do it. Just don't do it. Again, shout out to the MFC. I'm so sorry you're doing it right now because I start to feel like I've been put through a fax machine. I start to feel two-dimensional. Don't do it. Thanks to everybody. Thank you so much. We'll get back to this topic over and over because it's life. This has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org.